I'm going to be reading this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 to 8. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said, said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Thank you, Jim. I'm Champ Thornton. I'm one of the associate pastors here. Our senior pastor, who's normally speaking each week, Curtis Hill, is on a missions trip to the Horn of Africa. He's asked me to speak for us today. He also asked me to let you know in a text I received from yesterday that they arrived safely around, uh, I think it was uh, around, uh, I got the text around noon yesterday. So long, long trip. Be praying for them for a profitable time away. So we're continuing the series in the book of 1 Samuel that Pastor Curtis began several weeks ago, basically a series on the life of David, and we're looking today largely at 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're not there, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We have copies of the Bible on the back table. Help yourself to those. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, please feel free to take a copy of that with you as our gift to you today. For many decades now, I have loved good spy novels and movies, and I think I can trace it all the way back to around sixth grade when somehow, and I don't remember how, it has been too many years, uh, I came into a copy of an Alistair MacLean novel. Now, Alistair MacLean wrote all sorts of spy and espionage and intrigue uh, thrillers um, a generation ago. And so I had a copy of this book, and I loved it, because what he specialized in is the double cross, or in his case, often it was like the triple cross, or the quadruple cross, where you have a good guy, and you know he's the good guy, and then all of a sudden something happens, and the story turns sideways, and he's the bad guy, and you can't believe it. You're like, what? I did not see this coming, and then he's, there's another twist, and he's the good guy again. Or is he? So I thought, this, this is fantastic. I loved it. So somewhere around ninth grade, I had uh, come into possession of, and I would say audiobook, but that's like way too recent. So let's try book on cassette. Can we do that? So I had a book on cassette 
of one of his stories, one of the most famous ones he's wrote called Where Eagles Dare. It was a movie back in the day, Clint Eastwood, maybe you've seen it, whatever. Anyway, I thought it was a great story. And so every day on the way to school, my three younger sisters and I, my dad would take us into school on his way to work, and we would listen to an installment of Where Eagles Dare. And I could not wait. I was hooked because it really kept you on your toes, and it kept you guessing what was going to happen next. Are things as they seem, or is there an evil plot at work? How will it all end up? What about that informant? Can I trust him? How do we know? How do we communicate in a way with the informant where we can get information without jeopardizing the informant or our mission? And so all these elements spin together and make a really amazing story. And really the best stories are the ones that repay multiple readings. And this is the characteristics that we see in God's Word. When we go to stories in God's Word, we find that these stories as well have all the good elements of intrigue and interest and drama, and also they have layers. And we do well when we read them to understand that we can read them on various layers and levels as well. And we're going to actually look at 1 Samuel 20 today, Uh, in three different layers or through three different lenses. And I hope not only that helps us understand more what's going on in 1 Samuel 20, but it also helps us when we go and read 1 Samuel 21 or any portion of God's Word, especially the portions that are narrative or stories, true stories in God's Word. So we're going to look today, uh, let's just dive right in. The first layer, the first level the first lens is historical story. So we want to ask a question. You open God's Word to a narrative passage, and you're asking this question, what's the history here? Now, an author that I heard about in seminary, Richard Pratt, wrote a book called He Gave Us Stories. And in that book, he has a really helpful, at least I think it's helpful, way of thinking about these lenses or layers in Bible narrative. And he says that, first of all, when we read narrative, we read it as history. In other words, we look at it like we would look at a window. So right now, there's windows in the back. You don't have to look. It's all good. Uh, I can see out. I can see trees. I think I can see a car. I look through the windows, and I can see what's going on there. And when we open God's Word, we open 1 Samuel chapter 20, we're seeing events. We're looking back through the text into events that actually happened in real life, historical account, and we see characters, and we see interactions and conversations and events and twists of fate. And we see three characters in this text particularly. We see Saul, the king, Jonathan, his son, and David, the one who's been anointed to be the next king. So let's look at those three together today. So we meet Saul. Saul is the king, but he's not done a good job. He's turned away from the Lord. And as he notices this young warrior, David, start to kind of rise up in popularity in the kingdom, he's got his eye on him. This guy is really popular. This guy, it seems like the Lord is with him, like he's not with me. And he starts to feel really insecure, Saul does. And maybe he knows that David's already been anointed to be the next king, or maybe he just suspects, or maybe he's heard through the grapevine, but he is starting to feel very increasingly paranoid. 
And so he sends David out on missions, hoping that he'll get bumped off and that his kingdom and dynasty will be preserved. But it doesn't happen. He just grows. Everything he does gets foiled and David's popularity just continues to rise. And he tries to kill him, tries to throw him a spear at him and kill him. Doesn't work. And Jonathan hears about it and he makes his dad swear and say, please promise you won't do any harm to him. He doesn't, he's not up to no good. And he's, and so Saul even swears, I promise I give my word before the Lord. I'm not going to take his life. So that's Saul. Then we come to Jonathan, the king's son. Normally this is the next king. This is the heir apparent. But he also sees what God is doing in David's life. And maybe he knows that this man one day, his friend, David, the one he admires so much is going to be king. And you know what? He's okay with that. He wants what the Lord wants. Unlike his father, he's okay with what God wants in his life. And he sees David and he sees his virtues and his skills and the way the Lord is with him. And he's like, I don't like this guy. He's, I want to be a friend to him. And he goes to him and he makes a, a covenant with him, a pact with him, an agreement with him and says, I want to be your friend. And he approaches them and they have a great friendship. The text says he loves him. But also he loves his father. He knows this is the current king. And I feel a sense of loyalty to him, not only as God's chosen king at the moment, but he's my dad. And so there's love and loyalty to his father as well. And then there's David. So here's David. The Lord anoints him. He wasn't looking for it. It just happens. He goes, he finds himself facing this giant, Goliath, and he wins. The Lord blesses. The Lord prospers him and puts him in positions of authority in Saul's kingdom. He becomes a servant at the king's court. He goes into battle. He's winning. I mean, he's serving this king even at great risk to himself. And no good deed will go unpunished. Saul is trying to kill him. For what? What have I done? I'm just trying to, I'm trying to serve you well. And even though he's been anointed king, he's not trying to usurp authority. He's not trying to take the kingdom. He's just trying to be a faithful servant of the king, Saul. And he says, by the time we get to chapter 20, things have progressed so much, Saul's paranoia, that he tells Jonathan, he's like, I'm telling you, Jonathan, I know that that your dad swore that he wouldn't go against me, but I don't know if you see this, but there's like one step between me and death. And And Jonathan's like, I don't see that at all. Are you serious? And so David comes up with a plan that we read about earlier, whereby in a secret way, they will be able to discern and draw out what Saul's motives really are. Not for David's benefit. He knows. He knows all too well what Saul's up to. But this is for Jonathan's benefit. So his friend knows what the score really is. And so here's the plan. There's a banquet. And David's not going to show up. He's expected to be there, but he's not. And there's some excuse they're going to give about him being somewhere else. And if Saul gets angry that he's not there, then they know that evil's intended against David. That he was going to kill him at the banquet. And if, on the other hand, he says, oh, that's, that's no problem, that's fine, that's okay that he's not here, then we know all is well. Now, let's say things don't go well. How's he going to communicate to David? You never know if some of the henchmen are from Saul are going to follow Jonathan to see if there's any kind of meeting. So they arrange a secret meeting in a field where it looks like they're not even communicating, and there's an arrangement about shooting arrows and the message that's called out after the arrows are fired, and David will be listening off stage in the woods behind some rocks, and if he says one thing, 
the coast is clear, come on out. And if he says another thing, it's run for your life. And that way, everyone is protected. So that's the scenario. We look through the window and we see, here's the drama that's unfolding with these three main characters, Saul, Jonathan, and David. And so let's just read it together. I'm going to pick up in verse 24, read to the end of the chapter. Here's how it all went down as we look through the window. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything for that day, for he thought, well, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, and you could hear the coded message to David here, right? Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And here was the custom of people when they were saying farewell to each other in that day. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. We read that and we're caught up in the drama. This is a good story. This is fascinating what's going on. But what's interesting here is when we look through the window of Scripture and we see the actual historical events going on, we don't just walk away and say, hmm, what's the moral to that story? Why is that? Have you ever thought, typically when you have a story that has a moral to the story, it's usually fiction, isn't it? The boy who cried wolf, right? What's the moral to the story? That's not the way real history works. What's the moral of the story of the Battle of Gettysburg? Uh, maybe there's some lessons about military strategy or tactics that we can learn there. 
But the real importance of, for example, the Battle of Gettysburg during the Civil War is it was the turning point in that conflict. A turning point that became the turning point for our nation. A turning point which still affects us to this day. And so what we see is when we look through the window of Scripture and we read the story that's there, what we realize is that it is important because it is true, but even more than that, it's our story. When we look through that window, we see that God is not at some distance going, let me tell you a story, and here's a moral. No, he opens that window and we see him actively at work in human history. Guiding Jonathan, anointing David, protecting David. David who would be king one day of Israel. And through him one day would come the true king, Jesus Christ the Messiah, the one who would rescue the whole world. He is involved in that story. When we read God in his word, he's not telling us in these stories to just try to be a better version of ourselves. What we see is him involving himself in human history to rescue us from ourselves. So we see that here in this chapter. We see it in all the Bible. So next time you're reading in the historical account, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the Gospels and Acts in the New Testament, what do we see? We see God at work. Look through the window, see the characters, see the story. It's true, but see God involved in your story as well. So that's one layer. That's one lens. We're talking about what's the historical story. We look at it as if through a window. But now we're going to look at the same passage, and we're going to look at it like we're looking not at a clear window, but like we're looking at stained glass. And we're asking this question, what are the main themes? Because the Bible is not only history in its historical sections, it's also literature. In other words, the person who wrote 1 Samuel included elements and left out elements. I mean, surely there's things that happened that conversations David had with this person and that person, they're not recorded. But God saw that the man who authored the books of First and Second Samuel did it in such a way to make a point. It's like a preacher. He's not just talking to tell a story. He's talking to tell a story to make a point. And so we see how we're asking the question, how is the text arranged that highlights, like in a stained glass window, certain elements or themes? The light is still coming through, but we're looking not through it, but at it. How is the story arranged to communicate themes and emphases that we can learn? And so Here's one of the main themes, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, and that is of covenant faithfulness. Now, probably that phrase is not one that you've used this week. It's kind of a, it's a Sunday school word. It's a church word, covenant faithfulness. What are we talking about? We're talking about that God's word presents relationships as based on a decision, a pact, an agreement, a covenant. And we're going to see examples of this in the life of Jonathan and David. They treat each other with love and respect and loyalty and kindness, not because of how each of them deserve it, but because they've made an agreement, a covenant, 
to live that way, and they've made that covenant before the Lord. So let's look at a few verses to find out, like, where, is the, where do we see this theme in this chapter? Let's go to verse 8. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. This is Jonathan and David talking. Then verses 14 to 17. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan is saying, when you become king, David, don't purge my family line. Show me kindness and loyalty because we've made a covenant. And it says, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Let's look at two more. Let's go to verse 23. Jonathan says, and it's for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. And then the last verse in the chapter, we've already read it. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So when we talk about covenant faithfulness, this is not only the way human relationships ought to be according to the Bible, it's modeled on the way God relates to us as well. So let's look at some of the characteristics of covenant relationship. First of all, covenant faithfulness is based on a decision. Jonathan and David said, we are going to be friends. We are going to be loyal to each other. And everything else happened out of that pact, that agreement. The results of that pact are kindness and loyalty and love. I mean, It's not just on paper, it's in reality, in choices, in outcomes. It's not contingent upon performance or worthiness. It's not because, well, David comes from a really royal family. No, he didn't. Jonathan did. David didn't deserve to be treated like he did. It's not about who's in line to be king or not in line to be king. It's not based on performance and worthiness. It's because they agreed before the Lord. The Lord is witness, and we're going to live this way because we've decided that we're going to treat each other this way. And it's because, next, it's before the Lord. He's the one watching. It's not dependent on the other person. It's because of the Lord, not because of them, even if it costs them everything. Not a relationship of convenience. These truths are the key to good relationships even today. I do a lot of marriage counseling, and this doesn't apply only to marriage, but it applies in many ways, particularly to marriage, because, I mean, there, think about it. There's covenant ceremony. There's vows exchange. It's before the Lord, right? I see these truths of covenant faithfulness stepped on pretty regularly in marriage counseling, and you think, oh, that sounds really serious. Well, it can be serious, but it often is just very garden variety, and it looks like this. I have expectations of you, and I have expectations of you. And I've kind of put up with your not meeting my expectations for a long time. And finally, I'm kind of tired of that, and now I'm not going to try to meet your expectations. So what do we have here? We have people who are saying, um, I'm going to treat you based on your performance, not because of a choice I've made 
to be kind and loving and loyal to you. It's the relationship version of um, if you scratch my back, then I'll scratch yours. But if you don't, you can forget about it. This is common. And frankly, it's just human. And it's easy to fall into these kind of patterns. So what's happening here is if you're in a relationship like this, either you're always on trial and you're just like performing your heart out. I'm going to meet expectations and you're just really trying to meet expectations lest the other person not meet your expectations. Or at some point you're just like, forget it. You know, I'm never going to meet your expectations. We're done. But you're always performing. But on the other hand, if relationships are based on a promise, a covenant, a pact, a promise to treat the other person not as they deserve, but with kindness and love and loyalty, because my first loyalty is to the Lord. I make that promise to Him. If that's what's going on, then the other person cannot meet your expectations and you're still going to treat them with love. And, I mean, this is probably beyond the bounds of realism, but maybe you're not meeting the expectations. And the other person treats you not like you deserve, but because of what they've promised, because the Lord is the witness. So this is helpful in many levels, just relationally, right? We don't treat other people because of the way they treat us. We treat them the way God's treated us, which really is the foundation of it all. This is not just about Jonathan and David. This is a, is a, is a stained glass window for us to look at and see this is how God treats us. There was a pastor in the mid-20th century in England named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And before he became a pastor, he was a very famous physician. He was known for being able to diagnose people's illnesses rather quickly and very, in a very sophisticated way. He was incredibly insightful. And when he became a pastor, he didn't leave those skills behind. In fact, even as a pastor, people called him the doctor. And after a sermon to which many people came who were not Christians or people who were exploring Christianity because they appreciated his thoughtful insights about God's Word, about God, about human nature— after the services, people would line up, or I guess in Britain it's, they would queue up, and they would go and he would be in a room and he would meet with people like a doctor would meet in, uh, in his examining rooms. And so if someone came and they were exploring Christianity, he would say, are you a Christian? That was a, diag- a diagnostic question. And if they said, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying, he knew right away, instantly, they did not understand Christianity. Because when you have an approach to to the Lord that says, well, I'm trying, what you're saying is, I am trying to earn your blessing and your favor and heaven, eternal life, by my performance. And that's really not the basis of that relationship at all, is it? It's not about the way you perform, it's about the way Jesus has performed. It's not about how good a promiser you are, it's the fact that he has made a promise to save you. And so we see here in this story in 1 Samuel 20, 
we see an amazing set of themes of covenant faithfulness. And it really helps us in the way we relate to other people. And it really helps us understand this is how God relates to us as well. And so when you're looking at stories in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, you can look at it like a window. You can look through it and see the actual events that went on, events that affect us down to this very day. You can look at it like a stained glass window and see themes and emphases and truths that the author is trying to convey to us, not just like history, but like literature, God-inspired literature. But then we can look at it a third way. Whenever we open the Bible We look at it not just like a window or stained glass, but like a mirror. Like a mirror. So every time you open your Bible as a Christian, you're reading your Bible. But every time you read your Bible, you do realize, right, it's actually reading you. You know what I'm saying. You open God's Word, you're reading it. Maybe you're processing some of it. You're understanding a good bit of it. But what you know is that the Spirit of God is pointing to that thing in your life out of something in his word. He's active and engaged and showing you yourself. And so when we go to God's word, we can look at it like a window, stained glass, and like a mirror. God's word operates on all three levels. And so as we reflect on this passage in particular, here's some things that struck me by way of personal reflection. When we look at a mirror, what we re- oh, let me back up and say this. There was a day when there was a movement in this country known as the moral majority. In the 70s and the 80s. Where we find ourselves today in the cultural moment in the United States is not in the majority. It seems like the influence of Christianity culturally and politically is actually somewhat on the decline. And the the values of Christianity and certainly the truth of the gospel, while the gospel is going forward and advancing, it doesn't seem to be doing it in a way that would say, hey, we're the majority, we're on the ascendancy. We'd be in the minority. You know, but that's not a surprising thing. Christians have been in the minority for most of church history. Jesus said, if they hate me, they'll hate you also. It shouldn't surprise us. And we need to remember that we're citizens not only in the present age, but the one to come. And so here's some elements I think we observe in this text along these lines. Because in this text, we see, we observe the familiar tension between loyalty to the present authorities and to the coming king. We see Jonathan caught between these two poles, these two authorities. On the one hand, there's loyalty to his father, the current king, and there's also loyalty to David, the one anointed and coming king. So today, we also feel that tension. We live as between two worlds. We are citizens of this kingdom, of this world, and we are citizens of the age to come. We do not have the luxury of choosing only one. Secondly, we observe that loyalty to both is expected, even at great cost to self. Did you notice Jonathan? He puts himself at great risk. He meets with David, putting him at risk. He goes with David's plan into the banquet hall with Saul, facing, as he doesn't know yet, but he's going to have a spear thrown at him. Then he goes and meets with David again, 
He knows that he's not going to be the king one day. And then it says he went back to the city. He went back to the court of Saul. Jonathan lived at great risk and cost to himself between these two kings. You know, I think it will become increasingly difficult in our country in days ahead, in our world, with some legislation at the present or even future legislation that may be more and more restrictive to our freedoms in this country. And it might be more and more costly to be a follower of Jesus Christ that's faithful to God's word. It might be unfairly so. It shouldn't be that way. And yet, we are entitled to follow even at great cost to ourselves. And lastly, we observe that priority is given in all this tension, in all these the divided loyalties. The priority is to the coming king. Clearly, he's not going to David as a messenger of Saul. He's going to Saul as a messenger of David. He knows where his loyalties, when it comes down to it, truly lie. So the political process today, this particular policy, that particular policy, it's murky. There are good people who disagree. The process isn't always straightforward in the right now, but what's always crystal clear, brothers and sisters, is ought to be our loyalty to King Jesus. No one should mistake that. And so we look at God's word, and it speaks very relevantly to our lives today, doesn't it? It's like a mirror. And as you go, and maybe you read this chapter on your own sometime later this week, I'm confident God's word will reflect and speak to you in ways that are very germane to your life situation, whatever that might be. So I hope today, as we've looked at God's word, that you found it useful. Useful in thinking about 1 Samuel chapter 20. About the way that God worked then and works now. But I also hope that you'll walk away today thinking not just about 1 Samuel 20, but about any narrative portion of God's Word, and that when you open up your Bible tomorrow, maybe you're in the Gospels, maybe you're in uh, the book of Esther, that you'll be thinking about these three ways to look at the text in front of you, that you can look at the events, these things truly happened and God was involved in, look at what he's doing, that you can look and see how the author put the pieces together to communicate a message with the truths that actually happened, and that also You'll be open to the Holy Spirit pointing out things about you as you read the text. May God do that and bless his word. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. You speak to us beautifully. You speak to us pointedly. I pray that we would be always ready to listen to your word to your spirit, applying your word. Lord, help us to be listeners, but then going beyond, would you help us to be doers of your word as well? We pray all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our coming King. Amen.